Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by the Nyaradza Group. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today, I'm in conversation with Karen Bryan McSherry, the Managing Director of First Capital Bank. Enjoy this informative conversation. Karen, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm delighted that we finally pinned you down. Your, your busy schedule has yes. kept us uh, running all over. Welcome. How does an Irish man end up running a bank in Zimbabwe, Karen? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I've, um, I have a long history of banking in the UK. Uh, I've worked in the UK for many, many years with Barclays latterly. Uh, and uh, the last job I did for Barclays really was working on the South African, uh, the separation, if you like, of ABSA, as we called it in Barclays, essentially the sale of ABSA. And uh, in December 17, um, roughly about the time First Capital acquired um, Barclays, mm. Barclays and I separated. We went our different ways. And at that point, First Capital came to talk to me and said, would you be interested? And uh, I, I, I had no hesitation. Zimbabwe found itself with an Irishman running a, a very important bank. Yes. You, you, I've been looking at your um, profile, Brian. You have tremendous experience. Mm. And uh, interestingly, you, you tend to spend nine years uh, in, in, in institutions. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking at that. Is, is there a trick around nine years that uh, uh, Karen spends in these places? You were at Lloyd's Bank Group. Um, you spent a bit of time yeah. there. You were at uh, Bank uh, uh, of America and Mary Lynch, uh, yeah. Lynch. You spent nine years there. I did. 2000 to 2009. Yeah. You were with Barclays Group, uh, 2009, <laughs> 2018. So, uh, but, and then now you are, at some point, you're yeah. acting uh, managing director. Talk to me about that assignment of managing the transition uh, from Barclays Bank to First uh, yeah. Capital Bank. How was that whole experience? Is it now over? I'll tell you what, I, you know, changing branding is not an easy thing. Um, I am uh, 59 years old. Mm. Uh, most streets in Araria, I still call them by their old names. Yeah. Are you overcoming that tendency to hold on to old names yeah. and old brands? We're, we're slowly overcoming it. Yeah. It's not there yet. Yeah. You know, Barclays was a name here for, what, 130-odd years. So you can't change that overnight. First Capital wasn't a name that was known here. Mm. But we're starting to, to get there. People will still refer to Barclays. You know, people who have banked with us for 30, 40, 50 years. And it's hard for them to change like that. So it's coming. It's mm -hmm. coming. It's a journey. It's not mm -hmm. going to happen overnight. What What is the process like? What were the sticking points uh, as far as the transition is concerned? The biggest sticking point, really, there's a couple, but probably the largest challenge we had was systems. Mm. If you think about a bank and all the systems involved in it, every system we had was plugged into the Barclays systems. Wow. So everything had to be changed. Your core banking system, your HR system, your finance system, every single thing. So when I got here in May 2018, that process had started and uh, we were due to go live in um, February 2019, change of currency. Mm. So within two or three weeks of that, we managed to postpone our go live and we went live actually the weekend of March the 17th. 
2018. Not a good weekend for an Irishman to go live. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we went live and, and, and that was very successful. Hmm. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. The, the, the positive thing was our core banking system performed extremely well. Where we had some challenges was around our customer facing systems. Mm. And that was frustrating. And mm. it took us best part of a year to settle all of that down and get it working properly. And mm. I'm pleased to say we've pretty much done that now. Mm -hmm. and, and the culture issue, the people issues, has, how is that? Uh, that's, a, that's a work in progress. Okay. That's a journey. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, you can't, you know, people have been with Barclays, our first capital bank, for many, many years. You know, we had one lady with us for 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. You can't change that culture overnight. Mm -hmm. But we're getting there, you know, and uh, I try very hard to be um, myself, which is very open. Uh, and, you know, I leave my door open of my office. Anyone can come in and talk to me. And that's a new style. That's a new style. Um, and it's also about speed of execution. You've got to try and make sure we're, we're, we're responding to customers mm -hmm. very, very quickly, mm -hmm. focusing on our values as a business. Mm -hmm. And our values are really important to us. Interesting, um, Kyron, that um, my first bank account mm. was with Barclays and I opened that bank account at the University of Zimbabwe. Yeah. There was a branch at the University mm. of Zimbabwe, I think that was 19, uh, 1983. And, and so there's that brand loyalty Correct. And, and trying to shift that brand loyalty to, to, to first capital mm. has been a process, but I think I... I'm yeah. now there. I can imagine that's an, a, a kind of uh, uh, issue for you guys as you market, as you roll out yeah. your branding and that kind of stuff. It is. It, it has been an issue and a challenge. But that being said, we, we really didn't lose many customers. Most of our customers stayed with us. Yeah. Um, now, the challenge is people here don't close bank accounts and they're multi-banked. <laughs> yes. So it's really, are you seeing the flow through yeah. their account at the same level? And broadly, we are. That's good. Have we kept every bank account? Absolutely not. Mm. But uh, there's, a, there's a number of things in, in, uh, where we've had, you know, I can name two or three customers where, where I came in and I talked to customers and they were very frustrated with what we were doing. Mm. Very frustrated because... Because of the changeover. The, well, it wasn't so much the changeover. Yeah. I think what you have to remember is the context of Barclays before the acquisition, right? And having worked in London, you know, many years ago, 2012, 13, roughly, there was a non-core group set up within Barclays. And when ABSA decided, and we decided to separate from ABSA, there were two countries mm. that ABSA said, we don't really want to continue with. Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. and Egypt. Okay, so they were put into a non-core business. So you had four or five business years, sorry, of what I would call care and maintenance. It wasn't real investment in the business, it wasn't growing, etc. So we almost had to come in and wake up a business again mm. and get it going and get people enthused and driving and pushing forward. And that's part of that culture change. Mm. Mm. So it's important to understand that, where we were, where important. we came from. So when I came in as the acting MD and you go to talk to customers to say, you know, I can't get along, why can't I get along? And you explain them the context of what was happening at the time. There was one particular customer came in and he said, I'm coming in now, I want to close my bank account, I'm frustrated. 30 years with, with you guys and I, you won't lend me money. So I said, well, sit down, let's have a conversation. And I told him the context of where we'd mm. come from, where we were, and where the economy was at the time. When he left my office half an hour later, he said, can I, can I have a loan? 
And I said, well, we've explained it. He said, yeah, yeah but if you give me yeah. a, a approval for a loan now, when you're ready, I can draw. Mm-hmm. I said, fine. Well, Let's what lesson did you get from that encounter with that client? Because it looks to me there's, there's lessons from that encounter with the, that the client. Le- the lesson is to be open and honest mm. with customers. Give them the context of why you're making a decision. Mm. If I say to you, you come to me to borrow money, and I say no, you walk away frustrated. Mm. If I explain to you that liquidity in the market is very tight, uh, and I have to make sure we manage the liquidity of the bank. So therefore, I can't as a corporate lending mm. money at the moment. Mm. There's a reason, and that's why. Mm. You understand it. Yeah. Yes, you may not be as happy, but at least you understand why. Mm. And that, is, to me, is very important. Mm. That open, honest conversation with customers. Mm. Interesting that you say the systems. I mean, I can imagine the mm. systems and the back end having to be, uh, you know, um, disconnected to, to use yep. a term and I'm wondering why that had to be because Barclays Bank PLC still holds 10% of uh, the equity no. that's, that's changed. Eh? That's changed. So the part of the deal was in 17 Barclays would retain 10% for two to three years Yeah. Uh, and earlier late last year uh, that was sold and we First Capital acquired that. Okay. The rationale for Barclays retaining that was part of the transition process. Uh-huh. Okay. We were retaining the brand name, if you remember, for the first year or two. Yes. And then we went into a co-brand, and then we became First Capital. So clearly Barclays wanted to make sure they were invested mm. and protecting their brand yeah. reputation. Yeah. And that was partly why they did that. And we had a Barclays representative on the board here. Mm. Uh, and we also had a Barclays representative on the group board as well. Uh, and indeed we still do, because mm. they bring a lot of value to us. But the, in terms of the other shareholding, FM, FMB Capital Holdings, mm. PLC 42%, uh, Butler's Bank, uh, Zimbabwe Employees 15%, is that Correct. still the situation? No, it's no, now 52% okay. uh, for FMB Capital Holdings. Okay. Employees 15% as part of that deal. Mm. And then we have a number of other shareholders. Old Mutual will be one of the other biggest shareholders mm. we have in the group. Mm. Mm. And the I was looking at your um, half-year mm. uh, results, and uh, you were very positive uh, when you reported uh, the, the the last uh, six mm. months in yep. uh, in June. Are, are you still positive? Yes, we're still positive. What mm. are the What are the reasons for that positive? Well, look, we're seeing we're seeing our balance sheet growth. Mm. Uh, we're seeing uh, our ability to lend to customers. We're seeing a return on investment. And you know, for the first time in I don't know how many years, we've paid a dividend. We've achieved the minimum capital, um, and you know we've had a good finish to the year. I obviously won't go into the details because sure, we're in sure. a closed period. Yeah. So we are we are positive. Does that mean there's not challenges? No, but we're positive mm. about the future. Mm. Um, this is um, an amazing country when you when you look at it. Mm. Uh, and uh, I met with one of the government ministers this morning, and, and as I said to her, you, you look at the macro of this country as an outsider, and you wouldn't come here. You would just wouldn't touch it. <laughs> But you come in and you look at individual businesses, and they're very, very well run. Mm-hmm. The actual micro in this country is phenomenal, you know, and there's some very, very good businesses here, mm-hmm. and some great opportunities. And when you talk to people on the ground, they're also feeling the optimism. Mm-hmm. So people are very optimistic. Uh, uh, is the optimism sector specific or is it across, it's across the board? I think it's gener- it's across the board. Okay. You know, the area that you wouldn't have much optimism, understandably at the moment, is the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. But that's a global mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sense is that should open up in the next year or so. We're seeing, you know, certainly the northern hemisphere start to open up more, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's only a matter of time before it um, comes back to here. But generally, there's an air of optimism. But there's equally 
and you know, being the bank and being yeah. the accountant by qualification, as I know, pessimism. <laughs> um, you, you've got to be careful and balance that. There's mm. a lot of uncertainty mm. out there as well. Mm. You know, there's policy volatility, there's uncertainty uh, in, in times about the macro and where we're going. Mm. And we know we have an election on the horizon. Mm. So there's all of those things that you also have to balance off. Mm. But generally, business on the ground is optimistic. Mm. Uh, Where do you see the most excitement, uh, Karen? Which sectors excite you the most? I mean, tourism is problematic naturally because Mm. of the impact of COVID. Where do you see the excitement within the Zimbabwean um, situation? Personally, I see the excitement in actually agriculture. That's interesting. Um, you know, and we've done a lot of work and a huge amount of investment there, helping farmers, helping people. Um, and, you know, when I look at the technology in some of these, um, some of these farms, it's amazing. I went to one farm um, in, near Missouri last year, and uh, I was being shown around, and I was just blown away by the, the whole irrigation and how it works. Uh, and this guy was showing me on his phone, he said, I can sit in my living room and check the moisture in the soil in various plots. And if it's not right, I just mix the fertilizer, I put more water in, etc. And I can do that from the comfort of my sitting room. Hmm. <laughs> That's phenomenal when you think about it. That kind of technology is here. But it's the whole value chain um, that's there. And you look at the country, you know, this, you know, I remember when I was a child growing up and hearing about the breadbasket of Africa. Yeah. And, you know, there's the opportunity to get back there. Mm. Which, but, are, which other sector apart from agriculture? Well, we're doing some work in mining, but I think also the SME sector as mm. well. Again, some, some great businesses and young people coming up um, and, and pushing them. You know, again, another customer we have in Bulaway, when I look what he's done, 10 to 15 years from Tuck Shop to this wonderful facility he's building just outside Bulaway. Mm. Um, and, and it's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Some great entrepreneurs here. I am struck by what you've just said about, you know, when you look at the country from outside, mm. you wouldn't want to come in. When, when you come in and you look at the operations, yeah. uh, what people are doing, like in farming and so forth, you, you get a completely different uh, perspective. Yeah. How do we, in your view, how do we um, embrace that and begin to tell a story that reflects that excitement on the ground mm. that overcomes the negativity yeah. that comes from uh, the helicopter view. What, what's your sense? How would you do that? It's, it's a difficult one because, mm. you know, the media will always focus on the negative. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what tells stories. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, partly why I say that is, and, and partly why I'm here, I'm, I'm diverting from your question, mm. is having grown up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s, you know, when we had troubles our own in the north of Ireland. People wouldn't come to Ireland. And you'd sit there and you'd scratch it, well, why not? Because mm. where I live, I don't see any of it. And even if I live in Northern Ireland, I don't see any of it. So people focus on you know, the negative, that's what they hear, but actually it's usually concentrated mm. in a small area. How do we get over that? It's got to be by um, a combination of government and business, getting out there and telling the story. Mm. Going to countries, telling the story. People like me, when I go, you know, back to the UK, I spent Christmas in the, in the UK, and telling people, it's always, what's it like, oh, it must be awful, it must be mm-hmm. awful, and I say, no, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and you explain to them, and you've got to get people on the ground, though. Mm-hmm. We've got to get people here to understand it and see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I think that can only happen by a partnership between government and business. Are, are we doing any of that? We're doing some of it. Okay. Uh, it's starting. 
I think we can do more. Mm -hmm. But some of it's happening. You know, again, I talked to the Minister of, Indi Minister of Industry and Commerce this morning, and she was saying she's done that, mm -hmm. and she's gone to Dubai and places like that, uh, and had those conversations mm -hmm. and brought business people with her. Would the way this looks like, is it outbound missions to tell the world, like Davos and that kind of place? I mean, Davos was cancelled this year. Outbound missions, or do we fly in investors to come and say, look uh, what we've got? It's a combination, is okay. my view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Some of it's outbound, uh, some of it is about bringing investors mm -hmm. in, some of it about our, our responsibility as banks mm -hmm. to actually also, and business, to mm -hmm. also sell the story mm -hmm. and bring investment in. Mm -hmm. And it's about the government also giving confidence to investors. Right. When they come in, they invest, they can take the capital out. That's a big issue as well. Mm. But, you know, I think that confidence is getting there. Mm. Looking at the macro environment, I mean, you're talking about this beautiful story of what's, what's happening, but you're saying, on the other hand, there's those kind of issues. What concerns you the most within the macro environment? I think it's the inconsistency in many cases in, in policy and its implementation. Mm. Um, and, you know, SI127 is an example, mm. implemented. Mm then it was never really implemented. Mm. Then it came back at a time and then it goes. It's that kind of inconsistency. And it's tough. It's tough for, for government, but we have to try and get some consistency mm. in there and some communication and uh, planning between, again, business, government. So before mm. we implement, let's have a conversation. Mm. Let's consult, talk, mm. and agree what the best way forward is. Within the... Um macroeconomic mm. environment, one thing that sticks out like a sore thumb is the issue of sanctions. And unfortunately, it's one that has become polarized, mm. uh, depending on which side of the, of the political sure. argument you yep. see it. But as a banker, I know you, you're going to be uh, pretty uh, meticulous in cutting through it. We had your colleague here, uh, Dr. Lance Mambondiani, mm. who yes. broke it down very clearly yep. on the effect of sanctions on banks and their clients. What view do you take? What effect are sanctions having on you as an operation and on your clients, if any? Yeah. I think, look, I think if I remember rightly from that interview, because I did, I did watch it, and um, the, the largest impact is really around our corresponding banking relationship. We're in a multi-currency, um, and if we want to pay US dollars, mm -hmm. offshore, bring, bring currency in, etc., you've got to use a corresponding banking. That's the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes it, puts Zimbabwe on a red list. So people are obviously very careful. So transferring money means the compliance standards are much, much higher than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's a frustration for business, mm -hmm. but it also means that certain businesses are going to struggle mm -hmm. to, to actually transact mm -hmm. and to do business mm -hmm. internationally because they can't transact on it. Mm -hmm. So if you have a director or people of that on a sanctions list, we will not be able to do international payments for them. Mm. It also affects um, in terms of the just even the um, bringing cash in and transferring cash, you know, your, your, your money core people and that. They want to know, do you have any sanctioned individuals on your books? Mm. And if you do, that's a problem. So that's where the, the impact really, it's correspondent banking and the inefficiencies and the challenges that it brings from that perspective, that's mm -hmm. where I see the biggest impact. You know, one of the things that we have faced as challenges is opening what we call corresponding banking relationships. With, uh, uh, you know, because some of the currencies that we use, just to break it down into, into its simplest form, is the US dollars, right? US dollar uh, transactions or rand transactions or uh, pound transactions 
I need a friendly bank somewhere in another country, somewhere to do those, to clear those transactions for me because I am not an original uh, US dollar market, um, uh, as you know. So corresponding banking licenses have been extremely difficult for us to open because every country always, or, or rather every country that, that we, we've um, uh, um, uh, kind of been in, in partnership with has been extremely afraid of doing business with Zimbabwe. One, because, uh, you know, uh, sanctions, as you know, originated from the U.S. and the U.S. is the, is the U.S. dollar uh, clearing market. Uh, so so they, they're going to put onerous uh, requirements for those countries that are doing U.S. dollar clearing. So we've had quite a number of our corresponding banking relationships closed. Um, and it's also been very, very hard for us to open new ones. The ones that, that we um, have been opening, um, um, actually in markets which are secondary markets, Turkey being one of them. Um, I remember traveling to Turkey to try and convince uh, uh, one small boutique bank for them not to close our account because that was the only account that uh, we, we, we could use to do uh, US dollar clearing. A, a simple example is Visa. So, so visa card, right? Everybody here uses a visa card when they go to South Africa. For me to clear those, vi the, the, those visa transactions, I need a bank somewhere that routes the transactions. If that avenue is closed, you cannot get money into the country directly into your account. And, I, and I, I, another example I'll give you is that the transactions become extremely expensive if you are using fringe financial institutions. There's one institution. There's a price to pay There's for a price service to pay. because they know you're desperate. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I remember one client uh, that got extremely mad at us because they sent $100 through their um, you know, foreign bank account into their account in Zimbabwe. $100. The fees on that $100 were $40. $40. They received $60 into their account. Would you be happy no. with an arrangement like that? But that is the cost of sanctions, that it makes the um, entire financial ecosystem extremely expensive because you are not in the mainstream market. You are using financial institutions that are going to charge you a margin, a premium, because they're taking a risk uh, um, on you. And I know that there are many, many other examples of restrictions that you have on trade in that there are uh, um, institutions that can, can't do business with us because... Uh, um, they are on the sanctions. Any, any, any other direct uh, impact on sanctions on your clients and the, and the bank, apart from correspondence banks? I think uh, correspondence banks and um, at the cost, and also just generally remittance. Um, mm. Remittance as a general is, uh, uh, um, as you know, crossed over the billion dollar mark for this country in the past year, mm. according to the statistics from the central bank. Uh, but a lot of corresponding banking institutions do not like remittances. Mm. So, so if we have that avenue being closed again, as it is in many, many instances, we're going to Why run out of... Why don't like remitt remittances help me understand that? Because, um, uh, you know, remittances is almost edgy. It's, it's so, so it, Remittances are popular in what countries? You don't see people doing remittances mm. to the U.S., do you? No. Because, because, because the market works. So, so you see a lot of remittances going into usually underdeveloped markets because there's a lot of poverty. But, but there is a thin line between remittance and uh, uh -huh. money laundering, money right? Laundering. So, 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 so they look at it as a channel that can be utilized for money laundering. But we look at it as a channel for survival. Mm. So, so for us, remittance is the lifeblood of this country because uh, if you have $1 billion coming in into the country surpassing FDI, that is a real source of development funding for this country, whether that is going, going for uh, consumption or not. Uh, so, so those are some of the channels that are kind of throttled uh, by um, uh, um, some of the scrutiny that we've seen as far as uh, sanctions are concerned. Mm -hmm.
As Nyaradzo, we strive to continuously bring convenience to our clients. Nyaradzo Group is proud to introduce Sawi, a new virtual chatbot assistant on WhatsApp. With Sawi, you are now able to interact with us from the comfort of your home and can be assisted anytime via WhatsApp. With life assurance products, diaspora products, applying and assessing your policy, payment platforms, claims information and any other queries concerning payments, policy information or products and services. Simply WhatsApp Sawi on plus 263-712-992892 or register and start interacting and receiving notifications from Sawi on WhatsApp. Now, join in and experience a new level of convenience 24 hours a day with Sawi. say the biggest impact what other um, um, negativity flows from is it just the people on the sanctions list is it, is it just the institutions on the sanctions list well it's not so much institutions on the sanctions list it's the sanctions are mainly against individuals mm. but where it affects business is if that individual is on the board of directors of a company mm -hmm. that's where it can impact mm -hmm. because we have to you know in terms of know your client both from a Reserve Bank perspective, regulatory perspective, but on an international with our corresponding banks, we have to make sure we're highlighting wherever there's a sanctioned individual and that then causes problems. Mm. So it can cause problems at certain entities mm. and indeed individuals if they're on a sanctioned list. Mm. And the, the number of correspondent banks, do you, do you have a large pool or that's been reduced because of sanctions? What's the real situation there? There's a pool there, uh, and if I remember rightly, um, Dr. Lance is talking about yeah. corresponding banking in Turkey. We, we correspond, our correspondent banking is in London, with Crown Agent Bank. Um, and the challenge is to make sure you've got more than one. Mm -hmm. and, uh, How many do you have now? At the moment, we've got two. Uh, but is that an ideal situation? It, it is. is. Two of the you right? know, I'd love three. Okay. But I'm greedy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's about, you know, one of the big lessons we learned, uh, I learned, we all learned, was if you remember just over a year ago, I think, uh, we were importing cash through from mm. Travelex mm. and they ran into problems in the UK. And suddenly we had a problem, single supplier risk. Mm. Mm. And I think a lot of banks are the same. And there was a dollar cash shortage in the economy. Uh, we were lucky enough to get around that. But now we have two, three suppliers of cash. Mm. I'd like to get to the same from a corresponding bank perspective. Mm. Mm. Now, the challenge is also, it, because the American banks aren't going to take you on, but everything has to go through the US, mm. so you have to add a day or so on, mm. which is a frustration for our customers. Mm. So they want settlement today, but it's going Natural, to take a day longer. It? Yeah. It's going to take a day longer yeah. because it's got to go through London to New York, back again. Mm. So. Look, looking at, um, did the, the transition from what you used to be mm. to i'm trying to not to mention that word <laughs> so for branding purposes to first capital yeah. bank uh did that mean uh job losses where are you sitting with as far as your numbers are concerned we are down from if you're talking about staffing levels yes, from staffing where levels. we were uh, when we took over to now we are down we are okay. we are down uh, and we've made two we've done two retrenchments since okay we did one after we went live with our systems because you know your newer systems, Barclays was a very traditional bank mm. and had older systems, they weren't as up to date and they used a, a mainframe system for their core banking. We brought in a completely new set of systems, so that created an awful lot of efficiencies. Uh -huh. So that was step number one. 
Then as we went forward and we got more used to those systems and we looked at our processes, how we work, we did a second retrenchment mm -hmm. last year. For the moment, I think we're done. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're so. What numbers are you, are you sitting we're, at now? We're now at just above five hundred people. Five hundred people, okay. uh, and uh, I'm comfortable with that number. Mm -hmm. We look at selective hiring as we go forward. It's you know you can never say never, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm very comfortable with the size and where we are as a bank. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think if we need to grow because mm -hmm. we've got more business coming in, that's fine. That's a good mm -hmm. story to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, but for where we are now, I think we're at the right size. Mm. Uh, a, good, a good story to tell, which I, which I looked at looking at your numbers, is your capital uh, and, and liquidity mm. ratio. Yeah. Um, uh, pretty, pretty good. Talk to me through those, through those numbers which look uh, uh, positive in all respects, except for uh, the, um, uh, the core capital where you were wanting to create a buffer. Have you been able yep. to create that buffer? Yeah, Talk to we me have. about those capital yeah. adequacy numbers. Yeah. I obviously won't go into detail sure, because they're a closed period, yeah. but we are, we're, we are above. We achieved the minimum core capital requirement in June, uh, which allowed us with our forecast and our projections to actually pay our first dividend. Mm -hmm. And that was a big step. Uh, uh, and, you know, we returned money to our shareholders, which is the first time in a very long time. And, uh, you know, it's been a discussion at board level for the last few years. And I must admit, I've been one of the naysayers and say, no, no, we need to hold on. I'd like to build a bit more of a buffer. Because if you remember, I came in as the FD. Yes. So, um, but I'm pleased to say for now, we have a, we have a buffer, a buffer I'm comfortable with. And uh, anything above that, we'll look to pay out as a dividend. Mm -hmm. Just a reminder to our viewers, um, capital adequate position in June was, uh, you were sitting at 24.75, mm. um, and the minimum was 12%. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's a healthy position. But what you have to say. remember is, yeah. most banks will have, that's a regulatory, the 12 mm. is a regulatory position. Most banks will hold above that. Because again, you don't want to be at the regulatory, sure, I mean, you sure. want to keep off. But yeah, we had, we had sufficient capital mm. uh, to do, and to do what we need to do. But mm. again, over the last few years, we've pushed our lending mm. quite significantly. Uh, so tell me, I mean, just listening to you now, your your headspace mm. as an FD <laughs> and your headspace as managing director yeah. is there a change there? Is there a difference in terms of how you look at the business? Yes, there is. There is a difference. Um, it's, it's not a huge difference because look, uh, I've been an accountant for thirty <laughs> Forever. years. You know, and I go back to you know, <laughs> you can't just take the accountant out of me. So um, I'll always have that finance hat on. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the key things I need to make sure I do is give my FD space to, to work and don't take over his job. Yeah. <laughs> because there wouldn't be nothing more frustrating. Um, but you have to look wider. Mm. You know, as FD, you're, you're looking at strategy. Yes, you do look at the overall business. But one of the key things I've done, and I, and I must admit I've really enjoyed, is the client interaction, mm. which I didn't do so much of when I was FD. It was limited. Now I get out to talk to clients, understand business, and I, and I must say that, that's a change I've thoroughly enjoyed. You are a different accountant who enjoys client interaction. No, it must be. <laughs> but I am an Irishman. <laughs> Kyron, let's, let's, uh, let's talk now about the way the, the cl your clients experience mm. you. Yeah. I think one disconcerting thing with banks um, has been uh, the struggle of getting money out. Mm. The queues, mm. people spending, mm. uh, sleeping. Uh, in banks, uh, rather outside banks in, 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 in queues. 
Um, how is that? What's your position as far as that is concerned as as first as first capital bank? Well, there's two things to remember. There's a limit as to what we yeah. can allow people yeah. um, withdraw, both from a business and an individual basis in in in, Z, in ZWR plus US dollars. So we have to obviously operate within that. But generally, what we've seen over the last year, two years, is is a decline in the number of queues and people sleeping overnight, etc. But they are still sleeping. They're overnight. still yeah. Some of that though is about the bureau. Some of that is about getting access to the fifty dollars mm. a week. But it's, it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, and I must admit, when it, when it started recently, you know, I looked across the road from my office, and I saw all these people standing outside at seven o'clock in the morning, and being a bit dim, I was kind of, what are they doing? And then I suddenly twigged. They're queuing for the bureau because they want to get access to the fifty dollars. Now, but we have in the last two years, we've started to get the ATMs up and running again, mm. so people can start to use those. So that's, that's reduced the queues. Mm. And we're also seeing a lot more card transactions. You know, the, the, the volume of throughput and card transactions is, is greater. Mm. US dollar, it's still all cash. Mm. So I'd say a lot of our cash withdrawals now are, are really US dollar. Mm. When people are queuing to, to, to get their money out, and the other criticism with banks is your fees. Mm. You're charging us for for everything. Mm. You're charging people for uh, insufficient funds, uh, bank statement charges, balance inquiry, yep. bank to echo cash, internal charges, RTGS transfer fees, POSB, um, post of, uh, point of, uh, of sale and that kind of stuff. The, the, the fees are huge. And I noticed that in your, uh, in your when you reported in June, um, the quantum of uh, your transactions plus the fees contributed a lot to your, to your, to your mm. bottom line. Is, yep. is, that, is that the right position there? Am I reading this right? No, you are reading it right. Uh, and you look, as a business, we have to make money. We have to pay our employees. We have to uh, return money to our shareholders. That's what we have to do. It costs us money to perform all of those transactions. Mm. Uh, so we have to charge and at least recover our cost. The point I say to customers when they, you know, and I understand that they you know, talk about bank fees, how high they are. I said, but if you go to the supermarket and track the cost of food and your supermarket shop, you'll find bank fees haven't gone up as much because bank fees are regulated to some extent. Yeah? The, 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 the costs in the business go up hugely. Mm. So you know, staff costs, understandably, we have to pay significant amounts. But a lot of our costs are also US dollar denominated. Hmm. So that's a big issue. And then a lot of our suppliers are also pricing at the alternative market rate. Hmm. So it's a balance. It's a hmm. balance. But hmm. um, look, I'm never going to win an argument in terms of justified <laughs> bank charges. <laughs> I'm going to lose it from that one. <laughs> let's, let's take the view, uh, you having played on the global stage hmm. in terms of international best practice. We can be, this, is, this can be international best practice. I, I hold an account, mm. accounts uh, elsewhere. And uh, this, this is, these are not the fees that are generally charged. Am I right? Well, you'll find there is point of sale charges in every country in the world. But what about all these others that I've just had? All the others, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily, no. Because there's fundamentally different operating models there. Mm. Yeah? But you've got to remember, banking in Zimbabwe doesn't work the same way as banking in the UK or banking in the US. Mm. It's a, they're, they're different models. Now, ultimately, you would expect us to get towards where the European market is. Mm. And that's largely, as you say, free banking um, in terms of retail customers. 
in terms of retail customers. But we're not, we're not there yet. The, I think the, the criticism there, uh, Karen, is there isn't the innovation in the banking sector that says First Capital Bank is going to drop most of their charges mm. because they're making money, uh, earning income through uh, interest money, where they are encouraging people to come and open an accounts and they're investing the money, paying, paying the deposit, deposit that good, good interest. Is there innovation? Because when you say the banking, sec the banking is environment is different here than in the, in the world, it says to me, are we innovating enough? I think in many cases we are. In many cases, I think Zimbabwe in some cases is more innovative than other countries, you know. Um, but is it fast enough? Mm. No, I don't think it is. And I'll talk from our personal perspective. Are we where we need to be? Absolutely not. Mm. But we've been playing catch-up mm. because we talked earlier about the systems and all the changes we had to go through to transition from Barclays to First Capital mm. Bank. Mm. That has slowed us down. Now we're, you know, we're playing a catch-up to some extent. And mm. we've had a lot of success in the last year. You know, we've launched a WhatsApp banking. We've done reverse billing. This year, we're looking at uh, a, a new point of sale system. We're looking at internet banking. We're looking at, you know, these are all improvements on our current platforms, which should make it more efficient and much mm. easier for our customers. And, and one area where the banking sector is, 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 is playing huge catch-up is mobile money. Mm. I mean, the, uh, the, the mobile operators came and ate your lunch, didn't yep. they? You, you're just catching up now. Mm. How comfortable are you that, that uh, the future of banking is bright with mobile money continuing to eat your lunch? Well, there will still be a future for banks, in my mind. Because mobile money, when you look at it, is largely under consumer banking. Yeah? Uh, but, you know, it doesn't mean we sit back and we let mobile mm. money take, take the game. We've got, we've got to go after that as well. But I don't think mobile money will tackle the corporate and the investment banking space. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, if you look at a lot of the um, international banking, that's where their focus is. Yes, the retail money brings in liabilities, etc., flows. But the money's been made in the corporate mm. and the investment mm. banking. But what mobile money has done, Karen, correct me if I'm wrong, is that mobile money has, um, has reached out to the previously uh, unbanked, yes. unbanked uh, communities, correct. which sh ordinarily should have been your role as, as, as bankers. To some extent, but that, that's happening also. You know, mm. there are various uh, ways we can do that. But mobile banking can work in conjunction with banks. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they need bank accounts, right? Equal cash works with banks, mm. wallet in, wallet out. Um, and and it, it's, it's important that we, we, we support that area, you know, and make sure we bank the unbanked and, mm. and, and help people to bank. Mm. Talking of uh, technology, I had, you, you might have uh, seen the conversation that I had with the governor around mm. uh, blockchain and, yeah. and, and Bitcoin. Uh, I know central banks are taking positions around uh, central bank uh, 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 you know, yeah. uh, digital currency and that kind of stuff. What, what's the buzz within the banking sector in Zimbabwe when it comes to, to, to that? You know, I hear very little about it. And I must admit, it's not, <laughs> it's not something... And, you know, There's no buzz. My, my children will call me a dinosaur <laughs> and they'll be right. Uh, you know, it's not an area that I've got involved in. Mm. Um, and I think we've got so many things we have to focus on here. Mm. Um, there, there, are, there are Bitcoin out there, there are people who are getting involved in it, but it's not really a buzz I'm hearing in the market. Mm -hmm. and, and the other criticism for the banking sector at the moment in Zimbabwe is the fact that you're not paying competitive uh, interest rates. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and you're making money out of that. Mm. What, what defense do you, do you have? So where we will pay infrastructure, people want to deposit for 30 days, 60 days, etc. But if you need your money instantly, I can't pay infrastructure mm. because I've got to have that money ready for you to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's limited amount I can do with it. So those kind of current account type transactions, which is the bulk of money. Yeah, um, we don't pay infrastructure, but we do. If people want to put money in for a longer term, we're very happy to have a conversation and, and open a savings account and. And work that we're looking at that with corporates as well. Mm -hmm. do, do you have a standard way of looking at it, or it's uh... it, it? A lot of these things, particularly with the bigger corporates, you negotiate individually. Mm -hmm. But we do tend to have a minimum pricing, and then we work around that. Mm. The, the the other big issue has been obviously reading your numbers again, the effect of uh, you know foreign currency mm. flaws uh, and a big. Play a big effect on that in that is going to be the Dutch auction. Mm. Are you happy with the way it's functioning? Can can it be fine-tuned? If it were to be <laughs> fine-tuned, what would what what recommendations would you have for the well there's a couple the of authorities? Um, can it be fine-tuned? Everything can be fine-tuned. Sure. Yeah, and you know, in every walk of life, mm. we can always do better. Mm. So let me start by saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Very politic political answer, but. Um, I saw, I read briefly this morning, you know, some of the outcome of the conversations mm. that the governor had with business last week. And I think if they can live to some of those areas, I think that will happen. Obviously. Which one is a, so are those, So there's a couple of things. Mm. There's one is, you know, auction what you have to auction and settle it quickly. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest frustration from a business perspective is that uh, they're waiting two, three months mm. to, to, to get settlement. Mm. Now, we can provide some cover in the interim through overdrafts, etc. But that mm. costs business money. Mm -hmm. Because again, I'm using customers' deposits to yeah. do that. So that costs money. But, um, and then there, there must be a frustration from suppliers. So I think if they can settle quickly, auction what they have, mm -hmm. I think that will help enormously. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I also think it's a very difficult one to balance between the official rate, the parallel rate. And uh, I, I know the governor has said, you know, if you chase the parallel, you'll never catch it. Yeah. And to some extent, he's right. Uh, it will, you'll never catch it. But um, whether there's a debate to be had whether we need to go to a, a truly free market. Mm. Let the rate go. Mm. Let the rate go. Uh, and that will cause some havoc in the short term if that happens. But it's pain that we need to take, isn't it? Correct. Because at some point, That's my we need to, to say to ourselves, does it make sense to yep. be where we are right now? Yep. Or let's take the pain yeah. and, and get on yeah. with it. Is that the view that you take? That's my personal view. Yeah. That's my personal view. Yeah. And I'll probably get shot for that. <laughs> <laughs> but that is my personal view. Yeah. yeah. But I, I am, you know, very much a free marketer and you can't my view is you can't control markets. Mm. One other thing that um sort of um following the conversation that I had with the governor is because if you're not looking at the bank results, you get the sense that there isn't enough money circulating, mm. hard money circulating within yeah. uh, the, formal, the formal market. But looking at your numbers, your foreign currency loans grew uh, uh, in, yeah. in, in June when you reported uh, by a huge margin, from 1 yeah. million to 19 million. And you're saying this is driven by deposits of hard currency that are walking into the bank. That's fascinating. There's, isn't a, it? there's a couple of things that are happening there. You know, we had a low point. The prior year, we had one very large loan that was repaid at the end of 
20, I'm trying to remember my years now, but 20, 2020. Yeah. And, and funny enough, I had a conversation with the governor about this when we sat down recently, uh, or at least in October, or I sat down with him and he challenged me on our loan to deposit ratio. Uh, because if you look at the loan to deposit ratio for a lot of banks in uh, as a consolidated mm. number, you'll mm. think it's very low. As I said, you've got to break it down. Yeah. And look at where we are from a ZWL perspective. And, you know, we're trading around the 75% mark. And then on the dollar side, we are we have a limit of about 50%. So mm. we're getting towards that. So we, we're lending to that as much as we can. Our challenge, like most banks, is how do we bring in more liabilities? Because mm. the more we can okay. bring in and challenge, the more we can lend and, and the more business and support we can do to the productive sectors. Mm. And um, the the I get the sense that we are in a catch-22 situation. Mm. You know, we're supposed to be transitioning, like the governor said in the last conversation I had with him, to a local currency. But I guess the sense that actually the US dollar is taking a stranglehold in all our transactions. Is, what sense are you getting in the, in the, in the market? I know as, as you, you're going to talk very carefully now mm. because... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But look, there's certainly demand there for the US dollar. We know that. And the governor talked himself yeah. about people wanting to hold value in the US dollar. We've got to get more confidence in the local currency. Mm -hmm. And that's the key to it. How do we build confidence in the local currency? Um, and while you have inflation, that's where it is. So you've mm -hmm. got local currency inflation. You've broadly got dollar, I guess, I wouldn't call it stagnation, but it's, there's, there's little inflation there. People are naturally holding dollar to, to, to uh, store value. So we've got to try and, uh, A, get the inflation under control, mm -hmm. try and get people more confident in the local currency. Right. And, and confident in the local currency, but also confident in the banking sector. Yeah. Because people have had their, yeah. uh, uh, you know, their, their fingers bent, as Correct. it were, and they don't have the confidence. So, which is why, you know, I get surprised at these, at these numbers. But still, the point must be made that a lot of foreign currency is still under people's mattresses. Uh, uh, okay. yeah. And uh, what are you doing to get that money into First Capital Bank? rather than in under my yeah. mattress. What are so you doing? We're, we're doing a number of things. We, we are encouraging people as far as we can to come to us and talk to us about exchange control. So we put somebody in to help advise customers around the whole exchange control regulations to partner with the Reserve Bank, mm -hmm. but also then partner with the customers so people start to understand it. We're working with the, the Reserve Bank also on some initiatives around how people can avoid the 20%, i.e. maybe not go to the auction, mm -hmm. and we fund them. So there are various initiatives and things that we are doing uh, that are trying to encourage people to bring dollars in. It comes back to your point about confidence as well. Mm -hmm. And confidence won't change overnight. Mm -hmm. Confidence will come with time. And one of the key things I fundamentally believe in um, is that our role as bankers is to build partnerships with the businesses and the people and our customers, not just business, but our personal customers as well to help them to achieve what they want to achieve. Mm. And that sounds like a very marketing speak. But no, I truly mean that because it's not about making a quick buck. If we can build a long-term relationship and work together, it's, it wins for the customer, it wins for the bank. Mm. And that's what we've got to get to. Mm. And that comes with trust and integrity. Mm. So when a customer comes to talk to me, I need to be straight and I need mm. to be honest with them. Mm. If I can't lend them money for a reason or I can't mm. do what they want to, I need to tell them that. I need mm. to tell them why. As I said to you earlier, it's about yeah. the context. Give them the context and why. And, and the other aspect that I find uh, that we're changing is, is to get, you talked about innovation earlier. Mm. 
And innovation, you know, I talk to people about innovation and they, they tend to think technology. No. And technology is clearly a huge aspect of it. But innovation is also about solution. How do we solution for a problem? Yeah. And that's the other encouragement I'm trying to give to the team is, is I don't tell a customer no. No, maybe you can't do it that way, but is there a way we can actually come up with a solution that works for you and works for us? Um, and that's innovation. So innovation in your thought process. Mm. And that's Innov cool. Innovation in how you do yeah. uh, business. I, I, I'm going to tell you a, a story. I went to a, a bank and uh, they're asking me to fill papers, forms. Yep. I hate that stuff. Yep. Uh, I've been in banks before, yeah. all over the world, where I don't have to fill in a mm. piece of paper. But in this country, you know, banks and other institutions, yeah. the, the, the culture of filling a form, <laughs> uh, and if you don't fill in the form, you, 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 yeah. you, you're not going to have, you're not going to be safe. But we've got, you've got my data already. Why don't you find yeah. ways of, of, of making me comfortable? Absolutely, 100%. Where is uh, First Capital Bank as far as I'm concerned? Do, do I need to come in and fill in forms to open an account and today, to withdraw? Yes. Today, you probably would do. But in the future, in the near future, I'm optimistic you will not. We have a paperless project on the go, and then we're hoping that will launch soon, which will reduce paper. Yeah. But part of the problem also with paper, because I get frustrated. Oh, I where, hate let, filling papers. Let me tell you where I get frustrated as well. I look at the volume of paper sure. we have to store, okay, and file and warehouse an archive. And I keep saying, why can't we do this electronically? Part of the problem, as I understand it, is our courts won't accept electronic. Ah. So we have to also change, as a culture, how we actually look at things so that we can reduce the paper. So we can do, as banks, as you say, reduce the forms. And to your point, you've got a lot of this detail already, so why do I have to fill it again? So we're working to try and solve for that. But we also have to solve for the other problem of why are we storing so much paper? And because the courts went out, want to accept uh, electronic. Yep. That's ridiculous. That's what I'm being In this age. Yeah. yeah. So we have to change that kind of culture as well. Wow. I mean, I was, I was at a bank uh, uh, in December and uh, my wife needed uh, uh, a card, uh, you know, temporary card, which was issued instantly. Yep. Um, but in this country, you'd be given the runaround. So it's, it's a whole, we complain about a lot of things. But we don't realize that at the end of the day, each one of us sitting where we are, we need to change yeah. the way we do things. Mm. Uh, this country, there's a lot of things that are not working. There's a few things that are, there that are working, there are. but we, we need to change quite a lot. I mean, if the courts won't accept electronic, we've got a problem, don't mm. we? So we need to fix those kind of things. Absolutely. Um, but we as banks also have a lot of work to do. Oh, lots of work and, to and, do. And, you know, as you say, each of us individually have work to do mm. to improve things. But let's not focus on what's wrong. Let's, let's focus on what's Let's be on positive what's... because there's a lot that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> as Nyaradzo, we strive to continuously bring convenience to our clients. Nyaradzo Group is proud to introduce Sawi, a new virtual chatbot assistant on WhatsApp. With Sawi, you are now able to interact with us from the comfort of your home and can be assisted anytime via WhatsApp. With life assurance products, diaspora products, applying and assessing your policy, payment platforms, 
claims information and any other queries concerning payments, policy information or products and services. Simply WhatsApp Sawi on plus 263-712-992892 or register and start interacting and receiving notifications from Sawi on WhatsApp. Now, join in and experience a new level of convenience 24 hours a day with Saudi. One thing that I love about what you're doing is uh, your focus on women and young people. You've got mm. this very interesting thing called, called making the hustle entrepreneurs. Mm and uh, making her story. In terms of real numbers, how much are you deploying towards the young hustlers and, 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 and women? Are you able to, to, to disclose those? I won't go into it now because we'll all yeah, we'll sure. talk about all closed, of this yeah. in, mm. a, in an annual report. But, you know, we are, it's a start. You know, it's not a huge amount at the moment, but it's a journey. Yeah. We will look to build more. I'm not, because for me, the, the young people, the entrepreneurs, that's where... Uh, the opportunity is mm. in this country. You, th you look at the informal market, for example, and if you could formalize that, just think what you could do. Mm. And you've got to incentivize that, formal you know, formalizing the informal. Um, but young people as well, you know, they're, they're the future. I know a corny statement, a statement of the obvious, but they are. And uh, we have to make sure that we're supporting them, we're mentoring them, we're giving them the best advice that we possibly can. Are you in a position to disclose how you are incentivizing the informal to become formal? Well, I don't think that's necessarily... We can encourage them, Yeah. but I think that's also... But that's a, that's a big pool to Yeah, it's to a huge pool, but yeah. I, there's a lot of that is, is, is about macro policy as well. Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. lot of that is about macro policy. Mm -hmm. Karen, we, we, when we started, uh, I said, what is this Irishman doing <laughs> here? As, as uh, you know, joking, ab joking about it. Tell me, Karen, where were you born? So I was born in Dublin, in Ireland. Um, and I grew up there. I was, I was educated. Mm -hmm. um, and I've said to many people, there's a lot of similarities between Zimbabwe and Ireland and the Ireland I grew up in. Not so much anymore. Um, so, you know, when I went through my university education, I came out and there was limited opportunities. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, uh, and you're talking about the, the uh, mid-80s, um, Ireland's biggest export was its people. Hmm. And there was a big, uh, there used to be in the Dublin airport, they, we had this industrial development authority, and they had a photo of all these graduates there. And the, and the story was that only one of those graduates, I think it was one, was still in Ireland. The hmm. rest had emigrated. Hmm. And it was because of the... Um Economic environment. Generally, of the, the, the instability at that time, isn't mm. it? The, the political instability? Uh, not so much political. So no, not yeah. because, again, go back to what I said earlier, there was political instability in the north of Ireland. Yeah. Um, didn't really affect the south of Ireland so much. Um, it was more about the economic environment at the time. Now, that's changed dramatically, mm. you know, and I hardly recognize the country mm. I grew up mm. in anymore mm. when I go back there. Um, and indeed, you know, friends of mine who have moved back keep telling the children, you know, how lucky they are. They don't have to go overseas now. But, uh, yeah, so I went away to the UK to work for, at that time, for a year, in my head, and mm. I was going to go back to Ireland. Mm. <laughs> I, I suppose the positive it. thing from that is for Zimbabweans who, I mean, we're exporting a lot of uh, mm. talent right Absolutely. now, nurses, yeah. uh, doctors and everybody else, is that this is a season that we're going through. Mm. It, will come, it will come to pass. Yeah, if we can get it right, yeah. you know, those people will come back and, you know, 
we've already brought some people back yeah. who've come back to the country, who had emigrated and they've come back to work. Mm. They want to come back to Zimbabwe. And I hear that from a lot of people on the ground. You know, they, they, you know people go away and they mm. get to a stage maybe where they have a family. Mum and dad are still back in Zimbabwe. They want to come back. They want to come back. They want to come back because you get to a stage in life that you want your family around you. Mm. Are there any lessons in terms of how Ireland dealt with that issue? For, for, for Zimbabwe? Are there I, any lessons? I think the biggest lesson that I would equate and give is if you go back to 98, uh, the time of the financial crisis, uh, Ireland essentially went bankrupt. Yeah? They had overstretched themselves, the banks were in a mess, etc. Ireland took the hard medicine and they, 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 they drastically cut expenditure and things went horribly wrong for a few years. But 10 years later, they're back. And now my worry for that country is they're going to head back into the same situation. So you want to avoid that boom and bust. But the point is they took the hard medicine and they really turned it around. But it, it's, it's tough. That is a very tough thing to do. We haven't taken the, the hard medicine as far as I think. I think concerned. there's a lot more we can do. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you, you studied um, um, business studies at Dublin University. And yes. what else did you do? I did business studies at uh, Dublin City University, and I, uh, I always wanted to go into banking. Um, Why? Well, I, I don't know. It was just something when I was growing up in school, I was always interested in. Uh, and I think it was just how it impacted the economy and, and how you could really help people mm. and understand mm. business. But that didn't work out for many years. So I went to the UK and I ended up working in oil. <laughs> uh, my first job offer was in a, 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 for a US oil company called Marathon Oil. And I worked there for two years. And at that stage, I thought, you know, this is a big organization. I'm doing accountancy. And if I stay here, I'll qualify. But I couldn't put a set of books together. Because mm -hmm. at that stage, you're doing that bit. And somebody else is doing that bit. It was bit. a big organization. So I targeted a small company. And I joined a small wine company for eight months, 18 months, I should say. And that was a fabulous lesson. And I really learned the nuts. So you were deliberate, deliberate in your career absolutely. path. Let me absolutely. go to a small place yeah. that's going to teach me it's lots of things. It's going to teach me lots of things. And, you know, I went in as the assistant company accountant and I just learned right from cash through to the end results and how you publish what you do. I learned so much in a year. Hmm. And then I ended up back in the oil industry and I worked for Total for six years. Um, not nine. Not six. nine. <laughs> <laughs> right. For six years. Um, and that, that was a great time again, you know, I went through a number, a number of opportunities there and I was actually Total's first group accountant in the UK and we completely restructured the business, refinanced the business. Um, but at that stage I lived up in the northeast of Scotland, uh, in Aberdeen, and uh, my wife's family were in London. We'd been three years there and I think she was itching to get back to her family, so we took the decision to move. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that stage I said, well, okay. I opened up the FT on a Thursday, and there was a job that was, had my name in it with Lloyd's. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> so I applied, and I was fortunate enough to get it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I started in banking. Mm -hmm. So I, I went in there as their, um, for their life insurance business, mm -hmm. as their group financial accountant. So you spent time with Lloyd's? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I spent about four years with Lloyd's, um, and uh, that was um, an interesting period. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot there. Um, and I always say to my daughters, probably one of the best lessons I learned there was how not to manage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a firm believer in every situation. Yeah. It teaches you something. Sure. Uh, and uh, when I left there, I had somebody who was my manager who I just felt went about everything the wrong way. Mm. And when I did my leaving speech, he said some very nice words about me. He wasn't a bad man. I just didn't like the way he managed. 
And uh, I, anyway, I thanked him for all he knew. And some people came up to me afterwards and said, how can you say that? I said, because he taught me so much. By not managing. But how not to do things. Yeah. So I've walked over here with a huge amount of knowledge. So I think that was, that was one lesson for me. And that's when I went to Merrill Lynch, uh, who I had flirted with for many years in various roles, but they had phoned me about this opportunity. Uh, and I went to talk to them, and they, they, they offered me a job. And one of the first times in my life, I actually turned it down. Why? Because I said, it's very similar to what I'm doing now. And it's not going to stretch me. Mm. And if, I, if I'm going to join you, I want to do something different. So two days later, I got a phone call from uh, the new CFO who said, come and have a chat with me. So I did. Um, I, was a very, I was a very tired boy that day because uh, my daughter had been born two days before. <laughs> but, and I went in and we had a great chat. And he, we talked about a new role, which I was very interested in. And then the most bizarre interview technique ever. They sat me down mm -hmm. and they said, we want you to write a paragraph. Wow. So I had to write a paragraph and then sent it off to some graphologist. <laughs> who was going to interpret it. Wow. And? It's bizarre. Well, they obviously didn't discover my, my <laughs> manic past because <laughs> they offered me the job. They wow. offered me the job, but it was a very strange, very strange thing. But, Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I joined them and, I, 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 and that was the only Merrill Lynch asset management business. And I stayed with them for a number of years. And in 2006, I sold, I worked on the sale of that business. Again, another opportunity that just came to me and I, I, lo mm. I loved every moment of it. Mm. Um, and then I was fortunate enough at that stage to have a number of opportunities. You know, um, an old boss of mine came back and offered me a job. Um, BlackRock, who took over Merrill Lynch, mm. offered me a job. Mm. And Merrill Lynch wanted Huge me to stay. Huge BlackRock, so, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I turned down BlackRock. <laughs> which uh, I often wonder, did I do the right thing? But I turned why, it down. Why did you turn It was down? personal. It was, um, they wanted me to go to New York and be their CFO for their technology business because they ran the technology mm. as a business. Mm. It was a great model. So they built this platform and they sold it to mm. all other asset management. So it meant that their technology for BlackRock cost them nothing mm. and in many ways made money. But I knew the guy who was running it. Fascinating guy. But I know what he would want to do. If I move my family to New York, I'd be on a plane the following day. Mm. I'm gone for three or four weeks. Mm. And I, I just wasn't prepared to put my family through that. Mm. Uh, so I decided to stay with Merrill Lynch. Um, and I stayed with them for another three years. Um, and that was the time when, again, 1998, yeah. financial crisis, uh, and Bank of America took them over. And that was an, another transition. And I didn't feel there was a future there for me. Um, having even, although they said there was, I didn't feel there was a future and Barclays came calling at my door mm. and that's where I ended up in Barclays. When you look back, Karen, at your career, where you've been, what are the leadership lessons that you've picked up mm. that have stayed with you? What are the leadership principles, three leadership principles that, that, that you manage by, that you lead by? There's a number of things. One, mm. one, is, one is honesty, being honest to yourself but also honest to the people you work mm. with. So mm. if something's not working, or if something's bugging you, let's put the cards on the table, let's have the conversation, let's not dance around it, mm. because that's the only way we're gonna solve an issue. So you've gotta be honest and open to people. Um, and th the second thing I, I feel firmly, uh, passionately about is that, you know, th there's gotta be room for challenge. Mm. You've gotta have an open policy. So when I took on the role, you know, I remember saying to the team, you know, we can debate everything in this room. And you can all disagree with each other. That's okay. But once we make a decision as a management team and we walk out of here, we own it together. 
But, you know, you can challenge me, you can question me, you can say I'm wrong, no problem. Mm. So we've got, we, that, that's, that to me, that kind of style is, is, is very important. Mm. And, you know, recognizing individual talents, you know, I, I love sports and we may come on to this later, but, you know, you look at a, a rugby, if you're a rugby fan, 15 guys in a field, all with very, very different skill sets, mm. but all trying to achieve the same objective, but all have a clear role. So you've got to recognize the different talents you have. Mm. And equally as a leader, you've got to recognize where your strengths, your weaknesses are, and make sure you try and make sure get people in who will play to your weaknesses. Mm. So you've got an all-round team. Again, listening to you talking about the jobs you turned mm. down, yeah. um, what are the no-no's for you? What are the no-go yeah. errors for you as far as leadership is concerned, as far as management is concerned, particularly thinking of your colleague who taught you to uh, management, by the way, they were not managing. <laughs> I think it, it, management is not about shouting at people or not about threatening people, okay? You know, where I've made mistakes in, in my career, I've always said, yeah, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were two examples. One was more recent, actually, in my time here, where, you know, I, I had to phone and say, I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other guy just he said, fine. It's okay. Mm. You made a mistake. Let's move on. Mm. That reaction encourages people to actually own up. Where you're going to shout and scream and threaten, etc., people tend to mm. close up and won't come in. Mm. So I think it's really important that you stay calm mm. as a leader. Mm. Um, and I think that, that is one of the real lessons. I don't like politics. I don't like playing games. I've got no time for it. Uh, it's a time waste. It is. It it's is. So toxic. And, and you've got to also get the balance right between you know family and work mm. yeah you, can, you can't work 24 hours a day mm. when you're young maybe you think you can <laughs> but it's not healthy and uh, we have to make sure people get that balance right mm. you you talk about uh, mistakes mm. and you've just um, owned up to one that you made and you, mm. you apologize yeah. um you very long career yeah what's the most humbling failure that you've experienced that has taught you stuff that our viewers out there could, could learn from? What is, what's your biggest fall that as you picked yourself up, you learned a couple of things? I, I wouldn't say I've necessarily, I've been lucky enough that I haven't had a big enough fall. The thing I would say my biggest, if you like, error, and it wasn't an error in business sense, it was when I was younger and I started working. I didn't have the confidence to ask the questions I should have asked, mm -hmm. okay? And I didn't always understand why I was doing what I was doing. So somebody said, okay, you take that sheet, you write the numbers in here, you add them up, you put them in here. Why? And why am I doing that? What value does it add? What's the purpose? And that's one of the biggest things I encourage people now to say, really understand your role. Mm. Understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. Mm. Because if we all understand what we're doing and understand how it plays into mm. the whole business, then we're going to work much better together mm. and we're going to achieve a lot more. So I'd say I was lucky enough that I didn't have any major faults, mm. but that was one of the biggest lessons I think I learned. And if I could go back, I'd love to be able to have the confidence when I was younger mm. to ask those questions. Mm. You, you, you come across as very relaxed, um, as, as opposed to the way I have been experiencing you in public spaces. Um, how, how do you manage to relax yourself? How, how, how do you get so chilled. Yeah. Are, are, you a, are you a Liverpool supporter? <laughs> oh, good God, no. What, what good makes God, you no. so chilled? <laughs> um, 
my family would laugh at you uh, if they said he's chilled. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so maybe I'm just relaxed today. Uh, look, we, we all get stressed at times. Mm. Uh, we all get stressed at times. Um, but how do I relax? Um, I relax with family. I play golf at the weekend. Mm. Um, uh, I play in Bordell Brook. I enjoy that very much. I'm a terrible player. Um, What's your handicap? Uh, me. Yeah. I'm the handicap. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Okay, my my official H and A handicap. I was the only one who's, no, no. Uh, who's my official H and A is eighteen, but I, I really am about a twenty-four, twenty-five okay. handicapper. But you enjoy it. I love that's it. I, I love, I love the fun, yeah. the banter, yeah. the jokes, yeah. and and that's what it's all about. Mm. Uh, rugby is the other thing I love as well. Mm. I'm, I'm a big, big rugby fan, and I'm mm. so looking forward to the Six Nations coming up. Mm. <laughs> What's the thing that's that's that you've thoroughly enjoyed about being in this country? The people. Hmm. Um, it's, it's it's just great fun, mm. uh, great sense of humour, mm. very welcoming, um, and you know it's, it's just the weather also is great. So, Karen, we we love books on this show. Mm. Um, I am what I am because of books. I think if I didn't yeah. read books, I would be mm. a poorer Trevor. Uh, do you love reading and what books? I do. Uh, I do love reading. What um, books are you going to recommend to our book-loving audience? I recommend three books. Mm -hmm. One of which you probably won't get. <laughs> one, it was one of the books that I read oh, about five, six years ago. It was written by a friend of my father-in-law, and it's called "There's Gold in Them Their Tilts." Mm. And this guy came from there's the gold in them their tilts. Mm -hmm. Gives you a clue. Yes. This guy came from the west of Ireland with nothing to the UK and he, and he, and he built this business and uh, cash registers, all of that. But it wasn't so much he did that, it was about, uh, you know, the way he conducted his life mm. and how you can be a really nice guy mm. and you can have integrity, honesty and you can still succeed in business. Mm. But one of the things that really resonated with me when um, I read it was, and we, we had discussed it, uh, he and I, and, you know, he said, it's okay to fail. Mm. Failure isn't the problem. Mm. It's how you recover from failure. That's what the measure of the person is, and that stuck with me. And oh. I think that's that's that, that was that's a good lesson. Yeah. That yeah. So that, that, and there was a personal interest in it as well. So uh, I enjoyed that book. Um, the other one I enjoyed, and I'm talking from a business perspective, really is, um, and my Irish friends will kill me for this. I know. But Clive Woodward's book uh, in, right. in How to Lead uh, after the 2003 World Cup, and and. He, because he equates... Oh, uh, sorry, the book is? It's, I think it's How to Win. How to Win, yeah. And he equates the, the whole sports management with business. Mm. And he's right. And we talked earlier about the yeah. rugby and 15 men on a, on, on a field with one objective, but very different roles. And, and he, he talks about, you know, three things in there. And I'll probably not, I won't remember them all. But one is about, you know, being an outward leader. You know, it can't be just about looking inwards. You've got to look out. Mm. You've got to look out. People have to have um, a very clear responsibilities and understand their roles mm. and they have to take responsibility for that mm. and it's recognizing that you have multiple talents on a mm. team but you've all got to pull in the yeah. same direction so I think you know those three things I think taught me a lot and then the final one was um, a book locally uh, was recommended to me and it's um, you know uh, three ways to recognize the worst job in the world <laughs> And it, it, one, the one is about on a, anonymity. Who's written that book? Patrick Lecciani. Mm -hmm. One is about anonymity. So if you're anonymous in what you're doing, you're not going to feel enthused about your mm. job. 
if your job isn't relevant and you don't understand why you're doing it, mm. what you're doing and how it fits mm. in, you won't be enthused. Mm. And if it's not measurable, mm. you won't be enthused. So you've got to get those three things right for a job to be relevant and uh, interesting and uh, have a person enthused and engaged. But so they're those three books, but you know, there's many other books I've mm. read over my life. You know, I love history, I love fiction. It really depends on the mood. I'm mm. reading a book at the moment um, called um, uh, Don't, Don't Talk. Don't talk. Talk. And it's about, uh, it's, sorry, tell her, it's actually called Say Nothing. Say it's Nothing. A, it's about mm. the history uh, of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm. And what's fascinating about it is it's written from both sides. Mm. So it's not, you know, one side saying this is the problem, or the other side. It's about trying to bring the two together wow. and giving a dispassionate view. It must be a beautiful book. It's an, a fascinating read. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. It's, we need that. Hey? Yeah. We yeah. need that. Karen, um, what a great conversation. I have learned so much from what you've had to share. But I love your passion, your enthusiasm for this country. And I love the, 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 the fact that you have just uh, affirmed something that a number of people say that we Zimbabweans don't realize, don't appreciate mm. that we've got a beautiful country, yeah. that there's a lot of things that are going uh, on here. We tend to fix it on mm. the negative, yeah. and that does get us down. So thank you, Karen. We, we are benefiting from your being in the country, uh, running uh, First Capital Bank. We're very grateful for that and grateful for the fact that you found, finally found the time to come to a conversation <laughs> with Trevor. Um, Karen, thank you so much. Thank you much. so much. Wish you the very best. Thank Wish, you. Uh, First Capital Bank all the best as you go forward. Allow me now, Karen, to tend to our viewers who are all over the world. Thank you so much for your support, for making this show the success that it has become. Um, to ensure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, I invite you to click onto this red button and subscribe. If you subscribe, you'll get an alert every time we have one of these quality conversations like I've had with Karen. We are out every Monday on YouTube at 7 a.m. Central African time. We have gone beyond just the video. Um, you can scroll down below this video for the podcast. Click onto the link. Uh, for your listening pleasure. We read all your comments. Uh, the team reads all your comments. We respond. We like your suggestions as to who's, who's, who you'd want to see on the show. Thank you for watching. Thanks for sharing. Until next time, cheers to you all.